Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you could join us this morning. My name's Kavi Chavla, and I'll be hosting this morning's podcast. I'm glad you could join us for this session of the Baton Salon. It's great to see some familiar faces and hopefully meet some new faces today. Over the upcoming weeks, we're going to host Baton Salons almost on a weekly basis. And the Baton Salon, as some of you who participated last week may have seen, is essentially a space we're trying to create based on an Enlightenment era sort of concept of the salon to just share some ideas, some critical thinking, and really try to help organizations think through some of their strategies in these uncertain volatile times, uh, as well as a way to just build some, some fellowship amongst the business community here. Our podcasts will be posted online on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any ideas for some future podcasts that you think would be great, please do email us and share those with us at bg at batonglobal.com at your leisure. So this morning, the issue we wanted to really focus on was the issue of psychological safety, particularly in high stress, uncertain work environments, which I think for most of us describes a lot of the environments in which we currently are working, or at least we know family members and friends who are currently working in a high stress, high uncertain environment. Today, I'm going to be joined by Stephen Smith, who is head of people analytics at WPA. Stephen, if you just want to wave, that'll be great. Um, Stephen's going to be approaching this conversation from a subject matter expertise and an academic background in psychology, where I'm going to be approaching today's conversation more from the perspective of 20 years in business in helping lead and develop organizations. And how do we start to apply tactically some of these elements we're hopefully going to talk through and discover on today's call when it comes to, again, creating a safe psychological space especially for frontline employees. So I'd like to start our conversation this morning, again, in a very interactive way. If anybody who participated in our Baton Salon last week, we invite a lot of active participation. Uh, being a semi-academic, I am sometimes known to call on people. So uh, again, we'd love you to volunteer. But I'd like to start by kind of posing a question to the broader group on when you hear the term psychological safety, especially in the work environment, what do you think of? What does that reflect to you? Um, and Kathy, if you don't mind, I might start with you this morning to maybe share a couple of thoughts on that. And then Stephen would love to, to get your input a little more from an academic and subject matter expertise perspective. Sure, I should have expected that, shouldn't have I? <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, no, from at least from my perspective, from a psychological safety, I think about our our frontline workers. I work for a manufacturing company, and uh, um, so we have a couple of interesting dynamics going on. One, we have uh, sales uh, really up about forty percent on some of our product lines right now. Um, we also have um, some of our workers who um, so. While those of us who can work remote are, we have uh, several workers who um, have compromised immune systems. And so we wanted to make sure that we had an environment where, you know, if there were, if there was any level of uncomfort, discomfort in terms of, you know, coming to work. And even though we've done things like, we've done what we can to promote additional psychological safety, separating lines, um, having people take breaks at different times, um, having 
folks come into one entrance and leave out of that entrance just so that we are completely maximizing distance and minimizing interaction. Um, we still want to make sure that we're hearing from our frontline workers if they have concerns and, and they're not going to tell us that unless they feel safe to tell us that. Um, so from my perspective, that's a, that's a really key mm -hmm. uh, part of making sure that we are, um, you know, just delivering in an outstanding workplace while we meet the needs of our customers. That's great. Anybody else? What comes to mind when you think of, you know, and when you conceptualize or even plan for psychological safety in your workplace? For, for me, especially for, for knowledge workers, um, I think the idea of psychological safety means to be able to, to, to engage in tension, but safely. Um, mm -hmm. for, for me, it's creating a welcoming environment to contribute to ideas. Um, to, to challenge ideas, um, and also to feel belonging. I, I hope, I think, uh, by creating psychological safety, um, that leads to, to organizational commitment. Um, because if, if we, as I've heard a few leaders here recently say, if, if we do right by our employees now, um, you know, in, in three, six, nine months, they're going to run through a brick wall for us. Um, and they need to feel not only physically safe, but psychologically safe to, to raise big ideas, to challenge the status quo, to be able to take us uh, through this period and beyond. So Stephen, from a, I guess from a workplace, as a workplace scientist, right? How do you define and think about psychological safety? Uh, and then question number two maybe is, you know, again, maybe reflecting on what Matthew and Kathy have shared, how should organizations start to conceptualize psychological safety from a planning and strategy perspective as they look to respond first in general and be in the current conditions and changes that have occurred in most workplaces as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, well, there's kind of both the academic, of course, and in the practical side. Um, in terms of academic, you know, one of the studies that I liked the most was, you know, a couple of years ago, Google had did a, uh, done a study called Project Aristotle. And in that project, they were really studying what makes the best and the strongest teams. And being Google, they measured everything you can imagine. And of all the items that came back to say, you know, this is what creates the strongest teams, it was the item psychological safety. <clears throat> now, how they defined psychological safety was very close to Matthew Mitchell's uh, explanation, which was, you know, being able to take risks and able to put forth ideas without the fear of failure, without the fear of um, kind of being, you know, having somebody come back on me because I fail. So that fail-free environment is really what it came around. And I've seen a few different definitions of psychological safety. So unfortunately, there's not one standard academic uh, definition of it. You know, other people have talked about, you know, the fail-free environment. Other people have talked about free to express myself. Um, in today's world, that's even more important. Um, but I've always gone to the kind of the more practical side, right? So you know, I was raised in a military family. My dad was a pilot. So, you know, Top Gun was my Bible, for example. And something that I really liked in that movie in the end, after uh, the main character, Tom Cruise, had finally figured out, you know, what it was to be a good you know, partner and, and a mm -hmm. part of a team. In the final scene, he's in a dogfight. He's supposed to be covering his guy. And, you know, a bad guy comes around him and he's, you know, he you know, gets off the course. Uh, and as somebody's engaging his partner, he has to keep reminding himself of his, you know, late partner's words, which were, I will not leave my wingman. I will not leave my wingman. I will not leave my wingman. So he re-engages, gets his buddies back. You know, they take out the bad guys, cheesy music, Kenny Loggins, God bless his soul. You know, it's playing in the background. Everybody wins. 
but that's psychological safety to me, right? Like the, that feeling of I can do anything knowing that someone's got my back. You know, the kind of age old quote is, is all about, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Like we tell our kids, mm -hmm. that's psychological safety from a young age because we know how powerful we are when we feel like somebody's got our back. Your second question was, how do you start to actually start to tactically put this into our system so we can start preparing for it and planning on it? So there's kind of twofold of that to me. Number one is the kind of age old adage, you, you can't manage what you don't measure. So we've got to start measuring these aspects. And not only do you measure psychological safety, you need to measure psychological safety in a psychologically safe way, which takes me to number two. Um, like a relationship, and let's be honest with ourselves, psychological safety is a big part of any relationship with a spouse, with a child, certainly with your, your business. It's all about feedback and open communication, right? That's kind of relationship one-on-one. -on -one. So when we talk about managing what we measure, uh, measure in a psychologically safe way and make sure, especially now, that you are creating those feedback loops that are so critical to kind of setting up that next stage, which is, you know, observe, orient, decide, and act, kind of that OODA loop of decision. Those are all great points. So I may maybe push a, a third question on you, Stephen. So again, given, so I think about the frontline employees in the healthcare space at the moment, right? Or even in the, the retail space at our, you know, local price chopper or high V grocery store. So again, <laughs> feedback loop is important, right? No fear of failure. But in a high stress environment where the cost of failure can be quite, uh, quite high, if not fatal, right? In some conditions, that's, that I could argue that's a very different environment where psychological safety and the underpinnings of it, again, of this ability to fear, don't necessarily hold because the conditions are so different. They're so volatile, mm -hmm. right? So how do we still continue to build, because it's still necessary in those environments, maybe more so, right? Because the stakes are so much higher. What are some other responses or tactics around that? So you're absolutely right. And I guess, and that's why, you know, that academic uh, definition can be a little bit challenging because of the fail-free environment, certainly in a, in a, to your point where industries or failure is, you know, catastrophic. But to me, the underpinnings of that definition are all about trust, right? So, yeah, we have these policies and procedures in place, but because of our current status, policies and procedures might not do what we need them to do. You know, the policies and procedures we created for sunshine aren't going to weather these storms necessarily. And decisions are going to have to be made on the front line. Again, I'm a military brat, so I was raised in, you know, the, the art of battle. You know, last week, Matthew, you talked about, you know, some of those, you know, art of warfare kind of comments and rang true to me. And in those front lines, when the fog of war, as the definition team of teams, absolutely, man. When that fog of war happens, um, you have to have that trust and people have to feel the trust and the lieutenants underneath the generals and so on and so forth, that they can make the decisions that they need to make in real time without being you know, paralyzed by fear. So when, again, when you ask me, how do you tactically start to build that? You know, it's hard because it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? In terms of psychological safety, there is a baseline where you need to make sure that it's Physically, I am safe. You know, I, I do not believe I'm going to be physically harmed by a, something I can see or I can't see, whether it be a virus or a shooter on campus. Um, then you kind of go up that rung. You start to talk about different things. I'm informed. My job, my livelihood is okay. My family at home is okay. You know, the right information being given to me so I understand where I fit in this place. So it's hard to say that there's a one-size-fit-all because I think we're all at different stages of psychological safety. And there's different aspects that matter more to us than others, which is why even on those front lines where it's kind of 
you know, I hear you on the risk averse side, but you can't manage what you don't measure. And if we don't know where people are, it's impossible to get them where they're trying to go. So although it's certainly nicer to have a clean answer that applies to everyone, we're people, man, we're complex. You've got to start measuring and meeting people where they're at. So maybe the last thing I'll say about that is like everything, it's a yin and yang. On, on the micro side, meaning as an individual, you know, we have got to, of course, empower uh, growth mindsets. We've got to empower, uh, you know, you are trusted. We've got to create those feelings in the micro. But on the macro side, if you don't build a system that allows for that, it's, it's cheap talk. It's, it's something that's great to say, but I don't believe you behind the scenes and in my heart of hearts, I don't trust what you're telling me. And that's going to fail. So, you know, if, if you're a, a florist, my wife likes to do plants and flowers, you can go buy the nicest, prettiest plant in the shop, but the second you put it in your terrible dirt, uh, it's going to die. So understanding both the micro and the macro in terms of kind of the way we measure and implement these solutions is, is really important. So I really like the way you, you broke that into micro and macro, Stephen, because I think, you know, as Kathy kind of hinted at in the beginning, there was a combination of individual, so for lack of a better word, peer-to-peer -peer or leader-to-direct report relationship. That's a critical element of driving and creating a psychological safe psychologically safe environment number one. And then number two, there's a requirement of an institutional response, right? What are our policies? What are our procedures? And how do those get operationalized within our business? And again, I think, you know, the example of, while we may have been able to come in three different doors at some point in time, you know, now this is the only door these employees can use to enter or leave a facility. Those who are immunocompromised will use this entrance and exit. So creating some very strict policies, you know, so again, that macro and micro balance is critical. So as we think about those, again, in the spirit of wanting to this, you know, be a salon of where we share ideas amongst this entire group, I'd like to invite again, some more of the, the, the folks who have called in and joined us today to kind of share in their organizations, how have they experienced or seen, whether it's a micro level or a macro level, balancing and trying to create psychological safety, either in general or actually how you or your organization responding to kind of continue to drive psychological safety within this kind of current period of COVID-19 response that again, where there's a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty, and perhaps more need for employees to have leadership projected to ensure a psychologically safe environment. So again, I'd love to, to have some folks kind of share some thoughts on how their organizations are doing it. I'm happy to jump in real quick. This is Matt McDonald. Um, so for me, I'm on the talent acquisition side. And so when you're looking at the psychological safety, it starts from the very beginning. And that can be as quickly as they apply to all the way through the interview process to when they're offered the job. So we try and keep that in mind from when we're doing our assessment, whether that be a phone interview, now a video interview um, in the past and hopefully in the near future, getting them on site to the work, to the, to where they will physically be working and making them feel comfortable the minute they walk in. And when the leaders meet with them, making the leaders aware that they need to make them feel comfortable so that they feel psychologically safe from that interview process and are confident that that will continue on during their employment. So we, we hit that on the front end as much as possible. 
And Matt, I'm going to ask maybe a follow-up question with that. So how receptive have you found A, leaders to be to some of your coaching in terms of creating that environment? And B, assuming they have been receptive, what is some of the very tactical guidance you're giving them? As again, a lot of leaders may be unaware of particular actions that they are doing or particular actions they need to stress or de-stress in order to create that higher level of psychological safety? Yeah, it's a really good question. And we're with the factor, with the, the fact that the market is extremely competitive and, you know, I guess current state kind of excluded leading up to the last month, you know, if you wanted to get the best talent to work for your company, leaders had to be willing to do whatever they could mm-hmm. to get them to join that company. So they were very receptive to that coaching to say, okay, if that's what it's going to take, then I'm willing to try it. And some of the more tactical things can be as simple as not having more than three people, three leaders in that interview at a time. So for me, one is too little, two is enough, three is too many. Sometimes when you go into interviews. So if I'm interviewing and I'm sitting across the table from three leaders, that cannot be, you know, that's not always the most comfortable situation. That can be someone intimidating. They can not feel psychologically safe if there's three people staring at them the whole time. So we do no more than three interviews, interviewers in a room at the time. Um, as simple as making sure they have something to drink and then they have time for bathroom breaks, you know, mm-hmm. that they are be given time to, to relax and use the restroom if they need to. And they're not felt like they're held prisoner for six hours um, because no one walks out of that feeling comfortable. So some, those are some of the simple yet tactical things that we do to make sure they feel safe. Thanks for sharing that. I, I think the other thing, this is Uriah. Um, so I'm a HR consultant for Corteva. So I, I support, you know, 40 sites across the U.S. So this last few weeks has been interesting. I think the big thing I've been pushing on our teams is, is we just got to slow down right now. Um, it, it's not business as normal. Slow down. Uh, and at this point, it's sustainability over productivity. So how do we sustain the teams for the long term? Uh, and, and we may have to cut productivity back on, on the short term. Uh, and just being human, uh, one of the best things I saw from one of my leaders last week or one of our leaders in, in our organization was their kids came and interrupted a Zoom call. Uh, we're all working at home. We're all in this unique environment and showing that vulnerability of, yep, my kids are at home too. I, I think it was really powerful for the team. So I, I Slowing down is the first step, though. I think we just have to be really cognizant of what's going on around. Uh, and from there, a lot of things flow. Yeah, I, I really like your point, Ryan. I think, you know, especially that point about vulnerability, right? When we see our leaders as, as empathetic as humans, and, they, and if they lead by showing us that it's okay to have your kids interrupt a call, even if it is with a client, right? Because that's just where we are in life, that gives that space, that freedom, you know, kind of where we started the call, it gives that opportunity to have small failures and understand that will have no impact or no negative impact. And if anything, may even create a positive impact by stressing that human to human connection that again, continues to strengthen the micro level psychological safety. So I I think, you know, even just as a leader myself, I really take that point to heart. but again, maybe just as a follow-up question, and again, kind of I'm loving the conversation, but, you know, and perhaps even just thinking about Stephen's own background, right? Coming from a military family, 
sometimes as a leader, it is hard to be vulnerable, right? Especially in certain organizations or in, even in more conservative societies, right? So are there ways that you yourselves as, as leaders have started to display more vulnerability to the folks you work with towards helping create that psychological safety? I'd love to hear from some of you on how you're doing that. Because I know being vulnerable is one of my own struggles as a leader. Cody, this is Brody Darren from Trility. Hi, Brody. Don't mind me speaking up. Um, I think one of the things uh, at Trility that um, our CEO has done a great job of, of modeling and that uh, as a leader, um, pre-Trility and, and now extended in my time here, is ultimately the authenticity and, and the vulnerability factor that has kind of been chatted about here in, in, the, in the column and in the, in the chat. And we've touched on a little bit, but, but the, the ability to admit mistakes, I think that's a difficult part from a leadership perspective. At times you feel like you need to have all of the answers, um, that you need to always do it right. Um, and the willingness at, and, and I'm not only talking about, you know, the big situations like, um, uh, the, the current or the CEO at zoom has been sorting through over the last week and a half, right? Security vulnerabilities on this platform that we're all conversing on right now, uh, <laughs> which is a big one for instance, but, but I'm, I'm also talking about day-to-day -day decisions where, um, it's not your responsibility as a leader to always have the, the answer and, and your ability to step up and say, Hey, I failed here. Um, I took us down the wrong path. We took a few steps down a journey and, you know, we ran into a wall and um, thankfully, you know, I'm giving credit to my lieutenant that, that told me, hey, you know, pulled me by the collar and pulled me back and said, we can't keep walking this path. And being able to describe and and uh, be vulnerable with those things, um, I think that's something that, that our CEO um, has modeled quite well. And uh, is important in all circumstances. But right now, the other thing that that we're trying to keep in mind is, um, you know, the the CEO right now. There's a, a gentleman um, who recently wrote an article on on this. Um, I think his name is uh, McMillan, Andy McMillan. But uh, he uh, he stated that the CEO's role right now is chief empathy officer. Right. And so just the, the empathetic side of, of what we talked about of, of, you know, what everybody is experiencing, how much this COVID-19 has disrupted their, their world, their days, their um, concerns about the safety of their, you know, their neighbors, their, their colleagues, their, uh, their own family. And then just the, if they're lucky enough to continue to have a, a job, um, you know, what, what the working world is like for them on a day-to-day -day basis and how this has disrupted their, their life and just being empathetic to that, being gracious with that and knowing that everybody's human. Uh, and like the example that was just provided of, you know, having your, your Zoom call interrupted by your kids, we've all experienced that. We're all human. Let's be human and authentic. That's perfect, Brody. And again, I think, you know, Matthew's ability to to accept when he's mistaken, you know, again, that creates, you know, that micro as well as, you know, modeling of the behavior you want that enables psychological safety. Hey, so again, we, may, yeah. I, may I jump in just one second? I think I had a leader um, and, and she's, a, she's an OB scholar. She uh, is, is the chair of our department and she's fantastic. But one of the things was, especially on calls like this, um, some folks like to, to chat and, and have the audio. 
uh, some folks like to use the chat function. And so even just extending different vehicles or media for mm -hmm. engagement, um, some folks may be a, a spontaneous thinker and, and jump right out. Others are a little bit more reflective. And, uh, and, and so inviting participation through different media, um, either right in the moment or, or, you know, an hour or two or 24 hours after the conversation is another way just to, to welcome every different style. I agree perfectly. And that's actually the perfect transition, Matthew, to where I just kind of wanted to, we've got probably about 10 or 15 minutes left, just kind of push the conversation slightly away from the micro, which is, again, I think there's been some, some wonderful discussion and some great takeaways, even for me personally, you know, and Michael Dayton, I might, you know, pose this question to you as a lawyer. Um, you know, again, we create psychological safety through both the micro level interactions that people have talked about, but then are also policies and procedures, right? And again, as a function of COVID-19, a lot of organizations have been required to rethink institutional structure, to rethink governance practices, to rethink policies and procedures, right? So at a macro level, how can organizations start to continue to create a more psychologically safe environment but again, when you're thinking institutionally and organizationally rather than at a one-to-one -one level. Uh, yeah, thanks for calling me on the policies and procedures, Kavi. That is definitely my. And for people who don't know, uh, I am a lawyer at Nymaster, and I am, so I both help people with policies and procedures, but I'm also on the executive committee of the firm. So uh, it's my job internally in our uh, maybe less than uh, perfect structure to deal with policies and procedures internally too. What, what we've done personally, and I think what makes sense from a macro level is to look at your policies and procedures and what are you doing right now? And I, I like to think about pulling it back and saying what's really necessary at this point. Um, I think a lot of what's been built up over time, people don't touch it because it is, um, you know, it's status quo and it doesn't really affect their lives. And so it's built up over time and it can create culture in that way. And now when something just, uh, something crazy happens, you step back and say like, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And if there's no really good why, then let's get rid of it and think about it now. Um, we also have a little bit more time to think about things. Uh, one of the People said, you know, we need to slow down and um, focus on sustainability as opposed to kind of growth right now. And I think it's a good time to um, sound like a lawyer. Uh, look at your policies and procedures and how they're affecting your organization and determine what's really necessary. What can we get rid of? What can we tweak to really make this place what we want it to be and show our, show our mission better? And are there some practical examples that, again, you have instituted or, again, you know, understanding confidentiality, but, you know, in thinking about your clients, especially those that maybe, you know, are in manufacturing or in healthcare that tend to have, again, a high number of frontline employees that are potentially, again, you know, in this, this current phase of COVID-19, facing some day-to-day -day exposure how they've had to adapt their, you know, HR policies or existing policies to account for the new operating conditions? Now, fortunately, I would say, because I, you know, as a lawyer, we're not gonna recommend people do things that aren't in connection with the law. 
but uh, fortunately, a lot of the laws have been relaxed, really, mm-hmm. um, about things. So uh, if you think about um, all the HIPAA and privacy concerns, for example, protected health information, mm-hmm. that's a big one. We've all, um, you know, everybody's very protective of that stuff. We're very, uh, obviously, uh, individual and freedom focused in the United States. And that part has been the most important thing in our laws, uh, overriding even things like, uh, like they were saying, like using Zoom for telehealth, which we all would think is not the best idea if you want it to be super confidential. But now they've opened up and said, you know, all the rules, most of the rules on protecting uh, health information electronically and providing the tele stuff, um, that's going to be relaxed. So Mm -hmm. we can make sure that we're helping the group. So it's kind of things like that where the laws have been relaxed to help the group side over the individual, I think is really coming out. Perfect. Thanks, Michael. And again, I'd like to throw it open to the the rest of the the group to kind of hear about again in your organizations, how are you responding perhaps at a macro level to again drive some uh, psychological safety and maybe alter some of your policies and procedures in light of, of COVID-19. And Scott, I see you got off mute, I think. So over to you, my friend. Ms. Covey, yeah, you know, I think, and it really sums up to some degree what everyone has been saying. It's, it's all about communication, right? I mean, Uriah talked about just being human and relaxing kind of the productivity component. Um, you know, Brody talked about some of the kind of public praise and, and, and critiquing privately and, and being able to be genuine with mistakes. I mean, from a, a very high level, that's really what it's all about. And in and, and most normal situations, you can never communicate enough. And certainly in these situations, it's, it's very much true. Um, and, and using all of the different mediums uh, as well, that's been said. I mean, email, um, mm-hmm. online chat, I mean, one-on-one conversations or interactions. So... Uh, I think that has been uh, a very important piece for for us at, at Cognizant, but I, I think it really sums up what everyone's really talking about, even the, the vulnerability piece. In order to kind of show that, you have to be willing to, to communicate it. I think another thing uh, that that we've been practicing that maybe wasn't seen as a positive at first, but we fell back to what we already had in place. So we didn't react instantly to the environment or situation. We looked at what policies did we have in place already that we could go to. We understood that they weren't perfect um, and and found out that oftentimes they were more employee centric than business centric. Mm -hmm. Um, But we went to those and that gave us time to evaluate the situation and where we, where were we? Um, And, but we were, like Scott said, we were, we were open and upfront that this is what we're falling back to. It's what's in place. Uh, And so every business is looking at pay time off, et cetera. So we fell back to what policies do we already have on those topics? And then over the last two to three weeks, we've been evaluating and now we're starting to have those communications of what's going to change. Uh, but when we are open up, up front right away saying, this is a temporary thing, we're evaluating everything fully. The business, you know, as we made those conversations at different practices or programs were ending, 
they understood it. And so it wasn't like we were then taking something away from them. They knew it was a short-term hold. Perfect. And I might ask a follow-up question based on that. So again, when we've looked at a lot of organizations that, you know, whether it's during the current pandemic or looking back at other moments of crises where they've had to have some quick responses, as you said, they've either fallen back to existing policies and then they have been effective in evaluating and adapting those policies to the new conditions, right, to the external environment. So as you've mentioned over the last three weeks, your Corteva have been evaluating the situation. If you're able to, would love to hear some of the processes and data perhaps that you're utilizing to really evaluate that situation to kind of drive how you are adapting your responses. Uh, from from our end, I think a lot of it is th- there's not hard data out there. So it's how do we mine through our networks of what else is out there? So, I mean, we can see the news. Nobody should be watching that because that'll scare your socks <laughs> off. Um, but it's it's understanding, especially in a global or multinational country, of, of what's going on regionally. And so trying to enact policies that act globally but are flexible regionally. Um, and I think that's been our biggest challenge and struggle is as high level leaders or executive leaders, they want a one size fits all across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, letting them know that we're going to try and implement something that we can enact globally, but regionally it's going to be flexed and moved. Uh, but I think that this is where networks come in really powerful, especially here locally or in the U S of what else is going on. Uh, you know, one of the things and anyone that knows someone in healthcare is they're just happy to get a mask right now, (laughs) a new mask every day. And, and, you know, we have internal people fighting over, should people get a pay premium or a bonus or this or that? Um, And Mm -hmm. so really bringing back into perspective of, you know, what we have versus what others are fighting for. Right. Um, Right. Because long-term we're in business to make money and we have to make money to provide jobs for, for our employees. And so being real and honest with employees that we have to look at those long-term decisions um, and we can't just sort of break the bank right now to to survive the next three weeks. I I might just jump in there real fast. I think uh, I've been on the the phone with a lot of retail leaders, and and some of their retail establishments have locations all around the world, and and they're doing a deep dive um, on those locations in in Wuhan. Um, and then I, I think, as we've said before on this podcast, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so, you know, um, New York is two to three weeks in front of Iowa. Um, Italy is two to three weeks in front of New York. And China and South Korea hopefully are two to three weeks in front of Italy. And so as it comes, you know, east to west, uh, we, we do have a game plan and we have already created as a society, as a global society, lessons learned. Um, and, and the data definitely is messy. Absolutely, Uriah. Um, there's, there's a lot of competing models and a lot of competing best practices. And yet, I think uh, when we look at the, the full gestalt of the, the, the experience, there's some real interesting things. And, and I'll just leave you with this. I think um, uh, a couple retailers are, are considering, you know, for the U.S. taking temperatures before you walk into a space, which we haven't been very used to in the U.S. Um, We're going to have to get very comfortable 
And when they're thinking about creating psychological safety for their customers, um, you know, six feet distance, taking temperature, and then um, the the interesting question is, um, you know, what what do they do with that data? Do they do they attach it to your purchase history? Um, do they, you know, uh, they they've divided folks into three groups. Unfortunately, the the customers who have passed away, the customers who um, have had the disease and, and test positive for antibodies, and then the customers that don't. And, and how do you manage psychological safety distinctly for each one of those groups is, is going to be really, really important. Mike, I, and, and I'd also welcome Mike Von Wald. Um, Mike, do you have thoughts uh, from, the, from the aerospace side um, or, or even as your recent experience as a university student? Awesome. So first off, I'd like to say thank you guys for the opportunity to speak today. And um, just trying to bring in every, what everyone's talking about. I think um, Scott, you mentioned earlier, like the idea of communication. And I think that's so crucial to any um, business venture at all. Personally, I think it's one of my strengths. And when I was just looking at some of the comments and we're talking about this idea of being agile, and I think I bring a fairly unique perspective being, um, you know, I graduate in May here, so just about a month. And then I had the opportunity to work as the HR intern at Collins Aerospace in West Des Moines, Iowa. Um, so I kind of have like two different perspectives of like education and this idea of aerospace. And when I think of these ideas between being able to be agile between these macro and micro plans, specifically looking at Drake, um, you know, we have this, this um, program the university puts on every single year called Drake All In. It's an opportunity where, you know, people can donate to the university and help support our university. But because of COVID-19, um, you know, that they've changed that to help support our students and their psychological safety, creating a student emergency fund. And I like to think like if you transition that to the micro level, you know, you're having these one on one conversations via Zoom where we have this Blackboard Collaborate where students and professors can kind of have that interaction um, between what they're doing and having those class conversations. Um, so I think it's quite interesting to see, you know, how you can take, um, you know, these macro level plans and change them. And then, you know, you have these communications from like the, the top down from like the president. Um, from your professors and then breaking that down into those micro level one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, so I think that's just kind of my take on how you can look at this idea between a macro and a micro level yeah. from an education standpoint. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. That's very helpful. Um, you know, I guess maybe Stephen, I might invite you to, to comment on a couple of things. So, you know, I think again, when you look at the, the chat going on, one of the things is again, this think global, act local, right? And again, there's agility, but agility and not having a one-size-fits-all response requires access to, again, and Uriah kind of said, there's not much data, right? So on one level, experience is critical. That being said, when we look historically at responses to crises, if you think about it, even the military, right, you've got a situation report. Before you respond, you collect data on what's going on, plan your response. What's going on, plan your response, right? So I guess it seems like there's a, we need experience, but we also need data, but there's a dearth of data. So again, kind of going back to this space of how do we create psychological safety, both at the micro and macro level, as a workplace scientist, what are the pieces of data or how do we get good data to bring information to our experience to make the best decisions to support our, our workplace and our organization? You're so kind to call me a workplace scientist because my answer is going to sound very not workplace science-y. Uh, the the answer is the answer that's always been there i think this situation has made us more hyper aware of some of the opportunities that we've had in front of us before for example um you know 
we have been measuring employees, <clears throat> uh, our knowledge workers, the way we would widget builders for the last 10, 20, 30 years, right? Rather than ask about, you know, how you're using your space, for example, I'm going to go to seat sensors. I'm going to put a sensor on your chair, or I'm going to try to look at these macro systematic analytics to understand how many keystrokes you have. And that's going to tell me how productive or healthy or happy you are. But now we're realizing that out of sight and out of mind, and all of a sudden it's really hard for businesses to understand what their people are doing, where those roadblocks are, how do we make you more successful? What are those gaps that we can fill? How do I adapt my style to better coach you through this scenario? And the answer in terms of analytics is, it's the feedback loop, y'all. It's the very most basic conversation you can ever have. And obviously there's a way to do that systematically, but it's about having that open and honest dialogue that so many people have mentioned. So in terms of analytics, I think there's actually a treasure trove of information. Uh, uh, you know, several companies are, are having these kind of feedback loops created so that you can have that listening strategy um, and then measuring on outcomes, right? Right now, a lot of organizations, I don't necessarily know how to measure productivity, but you know, your butt's in your chair, you're always in the office, you're always awake at the meeting, you must be doing a good job. Well, now that day has come and gone. So it's understanding how to measure outcomes uh, rather than measuring your time and trying to get you to fill out a time card every day. You know, a lot of organizations are doing that right now. To ask me about how do we create the macro feeling of psychological safety? Well, some of these organizations have to go home and, you know, mark their, you know, what they're doing per minute for, for an entire day. Doesn't make me feel very trusted. Doesn't make me feel like, you know, my time is very respected. So being able to give that trust and measure on those outcomes and have the right kind of conversational feedback loops via analytics mm -hmm. is going to help us understand what are the unique nuances between folks? What are the similarities and how do I change my culture and my leadership adaption skills to really fit that need? Perfect. Thanks, Stephen. So again, as we're kind of approaching the, uh, the end of this podcast, I just maybe take a minute to kind of summarize that again, you know, a lot of what we see when it comes to the need for psychological safety is increasing over time in organizations and is probably very acute now given the COVID-19 situation. And I think a lot of the, the healthy discussion today was around how on an individual micro level, by creating trust, which means creating environment that is receptive to failure, but also creating environment of a bilateral discussion and feedback loop, right? Where we are parallel rather than vertical relationships enable the opportunity to both create psychological safety on a micro level, but also create the opportunity to start to collect data that can then inform creating psychological safety at a macro level. So again, you know, I know for my own part, there are a few key takeaways I've taken that will help me in how we are creating, trying to create psychological safety, at least at, at our firm uh, and with, uh, with some of our organizations. Um, so with that, I'd again like to thank everyone for joining us today. Again, we will be posting a copy of this website on your light or of this podcast on your favorite podcast website. And also please do feel free to email us at bg at batonglobal.com with any topic ideas you have. Remember to stay safe, wash your hands, and calm is contagious. Be well. Thank you, everyone.